Before we begin, I'd like to acknowledge that this podcast was recorded on the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation and that Indigenous sovereignty was never ceded. I pay my respects to elders and custodians past, present and emerging and to those of the lands that this podcast reaches. As I embark on this process of speaking and listening, I'm doing so in the home of one of the longest, continuous cultures of oral storytelling on the planet. I think the thread that sort of runs through my practice is more exploring these the idea of these invisible forces. And they can be the art historical context, they can be questions of value and authorship. It's all these cultural and physical forces that that frame us and that govern the ways in which we negotiate our world and, and ourselves and our being. That's the stuff that I explore in, in all these different ways. That's actually the kernel of my practice. Hi, I'm Ty Snaith, and this is A World of One's Own, a series of conversations with women and non-binary artists I respect and admire. In each of these conversations, we attempt to break down the how and why of what we make. Together, we look at physical processes and how they relate not only to outcomes, but also connect to the unconscious or non-visual parallels and needs in our lives. Today, I'm speaking with Sana Mestrum. A true contemporary interdisciplinary artist and new mother, Sana has a successful practice working across many forms of sculpture, even public art and project management. Her work is not literally figurative, but she definitely has a thing about women's bodies. In her own words, she's interested in questioning the body in a contemporary way rather than collapsing into tradition. In this chat, we hash up the old craft versus art debate and look at it from a new angle, as well as asking, how do you create something serious without it taking itself too seriously? Sana shares some practical tips on how to supplement your practice and even the importance of limiting your number of hobbies. We take a realistic look into how a successful career might grow and what hurdles and hazards to expect along the way. But first, let's take it back to the beginning. So, I mean, your practice really grew from quite different beginnings, right, of drawing, really, right? Or uh, painting. Painting. Yeah, yeah. I studied painting. Even my PhD was actually in painting, mm. so it was the title's convoluted, but blah, 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 in painting and installation practice. And I still now think in painterly terms, in terms of the relationship between the lived world and the perceived world. Mm. So a lot of the discourse I'm interested in you know, is exploring ideas that relate, you know, the 3D to the 2D and yeah. back again to the 3D. And so when do you think, because it's sort of, your works have got bigger and bigger and more kind of solid and weighty and yeah. in the world. <laughs> yeah. What, what, what do you think spurred that change? Like what brought you to that point? Um, I think that initially it actually came out of um, after, at the end of my PhD, which was 10 years ago now, a long mm. time ago, but Working um, sort of cerebrally for so long and in a sort of two-dimensional realm, I mm -hmm. felt really constrained physically mm -hmm. and I just felt an urgent need to kind of like a just an undeniable need to sort of 
break out, you know, and use my body. Yeah, right. I was going to say, so you, you felt constrained in terms of like, you know, when you draw a paint a lot, you get really tight in your yeah. shoulders. Yeah. So you wanted to be more bodily, physical. Yeah. To work. And it wasn't, it wasn't even conscious. It was mm. just sort of a need. Mm. And so, you know, through a whole lot of stuff, you know, different, I was boxing at the time and I was doing a whole lot of very, very physical things. And it was just a way to sort of relate to my body, you know, to, to re-engage my body yeah. in different ways. And I think the work um, kind of reflects that need. And it's sort of increasing as I become more engaged with my body, you know, through motherhood and all mm. this other stuff. It sort of um, becomes ever-present. I mean, you've also made work recently where you've cast parts of your body as yeah. well. Is that, so your, your head and your hands? Uh, my head, my knees, uh, my breasts, yeah. um, my mouth. Yeah. Yep. And so my legs, is that a type of way of sort of like imprinting you physically on the work or is that a way of understanding your body or why do you think you need to do that? Hmm, I don't know if I can answer that. <laughs> it's not so it's not really um intentional and I'm really mindful of not being becoming too figurative in my work, mm. not literally figurative. Mm. Because that, you know, you can very quickly descend into sort of really cheesy, <laughs> you know, uh, traditional sure. art forms. Yeah, so, especially when you're working with bronze and, yeah, you know, big stone and, yeah. and kind of traditional materials. Mm. So I'm sort of, I think I'm I'm trying to toy with a sort of an edge. I'm mm. trying to find an edge where it's, you know, very contemporary and questioning the body mm. versus collapsing into, into tradition. Yeah. You know, so I'm trying to brush up against an edge there. Yeah. But in a sense by breaking open the body. Yeah, but also by putting, I mean, the, the works that I love so much of yours recently are just putting the female form, you know, back into the landscape. So we're so yeah. used to seeing either like nymph-like kind of bronzes made by men or big mas masculine stone, you know, sculptures of men. But yours sort of do something else that we haven't really seen that much before. I mean, they look like they could be modernist from mm. a certain time, but they're very much a, a a much stronger representation of the female form in the landscape. Yeah. And that's um, like where do you draw the line between how, you know, how big can the woman get? Like how, yeah. is there a limit? Um, no, no, no. I've just been working on a 10-metre <laughs> you know, really? form. Yeah. Wow. So, um, no, nah, there's definitely no limit. I mean, I love this sort of – ironically, it's it's um, informed by Picasso's representation of women mm. that were actually these sort of stoic, heavy – Like you know, the bathers um, d'Avignon. They, yeah, they're yeah, sort of Demoiselle like, d'Avignon. Yeah, 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 they're, yeah. They're and clunky, clunky. Yeah. Um, but all of his, all of his works from even before that period, after the pink and blue period. Mm. But they were, um, they had gravity in their bodies, yeah. heavy thighs, big feet. I really love that representation of women, even though mm. he was, you know, some. Well, as far as we know, somewhat of a misogynist and somewhat. all the rest of it. <laughs> but there was something in the way that he can that he captured women that mm. I really do love. He and Louise Bourgeois, mm. at, who are at polar ends conceptually, but mm. they, um, I love both the richness and the ways that they represent women. Mm. And so, I mean, there's also a slight amount of humour in, you know, the works that you made that are also fountains you yeah. know, coming out of the breasts, which but, but ha have been done classically as well, yeah. you know, in Italian sculpture and whatever. But that element of humour, you know, is that something that you think about or did that happen purely? Oh, definitely, yeah. I think it's, um, 
it's again sort of um, without being absurdist, but mm. definitely I think there's a sort of a lightness of being that I want to retain in the work I in think, heavy materials yeah in heavy <laughs> materials and because it's so the materials are often so traditional mm. I kind of it's sort of I guess a play you know becomes a play with that mm. by having these lactating women fountain figures and yeah. you know yeah it's like how do you create something serious without it taking itself too seriously yeah it's hard in public sculpture as well because it's kind of this realm that traditionally big heavy stuff Made by men, quite serious. Yeah. Big amounts of money. Yeah. You know, it's not like a light little cartoon. Absolutely. <laughs> and it's still public sculpture, even though it's been around since, you know, for 100 years, mm. it's post, you know, not, not including monuments and so mm. on, but in a more sort of recent art historical sense, mm. it's still in a way quite new terrain. The mm. modernists of the 50s and 60s, you know, Calder and, and so mm. on, dominated the landscape, but of, of the genre, but actually it's still being rewritten, the ways mm. to explore public art. Like it's it's been given a bad name by Plonkart and so on, mm-hmm. but it's really um, we're in a new time now mm. where the role of the public artist mm. is still being defined. You know, a- am I you know, the project manager, do I do I do yeah. a drawing and a tiny little clay marquette mm. and then hand the whole thing over to someone? Or is it more important that I I mean, even can I give up, give across project management and just leave it at that, you know, mm. just give my concept over? Like where's the question of authorship? And that's still very new. Every, every project I yeah. do, there's a new contract that's written up. There's no template. From what I understand, though, from, you know, just hearing about how you operate in that, within that world, you're very, your skills lie outside of just making beautiful objects. And I think as a public artist, your skills are very much in that sort of project management or actually seeing it sit within the landscape and how that happens and how you become part of a bigger team yeah you know and but you've also got interest in that yeah of like place definitely making site specificity and and I think the team thing is really important Mm. like I love other voices other minds other just sitting around a table and sharing ideas and exploring possibilities and you know even the role of like a structural engineer who has a completely different skill set to me will be able to come through with the most exciting <laughs> material possibilities because they know things they know the limits of stone in a way that I don't mm. so you know they say well actually you could use stone in that if you you know uh within these conditions or you know change those sets of conditions and you can use that and it's that's a, need to be I, open to that. absolutely yeah, yeah. and I'm completely fluid with with all of that that's really interesting. So, I mean, I'm kind of, I'm really fascinated in other artists' process, I guess, being an artist myself. Everyone seems to have such a unique process. And some people, you know, recently, well, yesterday we spoke to Esther Stewart and she was talking about her process is very, very planned, like to the point where once she makes the painting, nothing ever changes, mm-hmm. you know. So for you, you know, what is that process like? It's the complete opposite. Mm-hmm. So for me, the concept is what I give birth to. Mm-hmm. And then whether I'm working in clay, like at a domestic scale, doing ceramic sculptures mm-hmm. or doing large works, it's it's not fixed until it's gone through, until it's finished. Until it's in the gallery or yeah. on site. Yeah. So it could change anywhere up until that final yeah. install. With the, with the larger projects, with the, like public scale works, there's so much input because there's so many different stakeholders and and I'm not just talking council, I'm not talking that stuff, I'm talking more in the creative sense like mm. engineers and fabricators who have these skill sets. 
and I really, as I said, I welcome all of that input. So I don't want to just be some pseudo master and say, this is what I want, make it work. Mm. I want to say. Well, it wouldn't work. You it, do well, that, you? His, I mean, it could work, but it, yeah. it, but it wouldn't, it would be illogical. It wouldn't yield to the process mm. of materiality, of time, of scale, mm. budget, like it would be much too modernist in that sense yeah. to say this is what I want. It's quite a funny kind of contradiction though of being kind of yielding and open and flexible but with like concrete. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's a funny, you know. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but it does But I like that paradox. Yeah, and sometimes that's what I mean that's what makes the work is that paradox, isn't yeah. it? Because if you were doing something with performance it probably would be totally different. Yeah. But I mean, on that, on that idea of yielding and what it is to be sort of flexible in your practice, you know, yeah. you said recently you've become, um, I know you've become a mum recently, yeah. but for people listening, um, how has that influenced or changed and, you know, for, yeah. for in what way have yeah. you yielded to that? Um, it's been a massive change. Um, my son's seven months now. Um you're still in the cave. I call it the cave. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The the bunker. Yeah. Um, the main work I've done, aside from doing a lot of um, being involved peripherally in some bigger projects, the, the main work I've done since he's been born has been a body of ceramic works. Mm-hmm. And my studio's um, at, ho- at home, which is actually next door. I, I rent out my neighbour's property. Yeah. It was really hard. It was a really stressful body of work. He was six to 12 weeks. I made, you know, seven sculptures over a six-week period. And everything was... Lot. Yeah, and they were big. They're yeah, like, they're you big. know, sort of 70-centimetre mm. ceramic sculptures. Mm. Clay, working with clay is very physical, you know, from rolling out slabs mm. to... It's just I'm constant. I, I never sit down when I work. I'm always and unpredictable. Yeah. So you might not. You know, I mean, if you're making a painting, you kind of know how long it's going to take. But with clay, it can bust at yeah. any oh, point yeah. in the process. Or absolutely right at the end. Yep. Yep. <laughs> and I think one of the hardest things, you know, if, if Dante would start crying, I'd have the the monitor with me in the studio, and mm. I'd have to run next door back into the house to. I, I was on tenter hooks the whole time, mm. you know, and I couldn't enter into the work in a way that I wanted to. Mm-hmm. But that's okay. I just that was a new constraint that I just had to work with. Yeah. And and the whole process became a series of bite-sized chunks. Mm-hmm. How many slabs can I roll out? And w- working with clay is all about timing anyway. You know, you, you totally. can't work with it when it's, it's too, too wet, wet or too or dry. Too dry. Yeah. So it just became a really sort of a tetris of time and logistics. Yeah. But it sort of suits you in a way because you're used to these constraints from every angle. So yeah. it becomes part of the challenge. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. then doing it with no sleep, a second challenge. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> May as well take some acid while you're <laughs> yeah. at it. See some if you Ritalin. can do it then. Some Ritalin. Oh, my God. <laughs> it's a bit like that, though. It becomes absurd in the end. It's like, what yeah. else do I have to do now? Yeah. Like, think some brilliant ideas. Write an essay, you yeah. know? Yeah, oh, my God. You know, <laughs> I just examined a PhD. I, yeah. You know, I've sort of done so much disparate stuff over this time. But you just make it all work. Yeah, you make it work. Yeah. Until, and, and then I guess if something happens and goes wrong, then you just deal with it as it happens. And yeah. sometimes your practice changes or yeah. different projects. I mean, that is the good thing about being an artist, I've always thought, with a baby, is that you're not in a nine-to-five thing where you have to go to these meetings and do these certain things. That, well, sometimes you do, but each project is quite different and yep. so it keeps you flexible in a way that if you've been a 
an artist before you have a baby, usually you're pretty flexible. Yeah. You have yeah. to deal with different situations. Yeah. So. You know, I take Dante with me everywhere except, as I was just saying, on Tuesdays and Thursdays we've just arranged that I have yeah. I've reclaimed those two days <laughs> and my partner cares for Dante. But I, I'm really lucky that sort of every part of my life, whether it's working at the foundry or if it's, you know, working in a sort of um, – I'm working with a team on a, a landscape architecture team on mm-hmm. a project at the moment. Everyone is fine with me not only taking Dante with me into these, mm-hmm. you know, different environments, but breastfeeding, you know, yeah. like that's well, just part of be. the package. Yeah, yeah, that's good. And that they know you well enough, I guess, to know that. Yeah. That's I mean, imagine living in a time when that wasn't okay. Yeah. That's all it made me think was just imagine imagine that time where it was not all right to rock up with your baby and yeah. or you felt like you couldn't breastfeed and in lots of parts of the world. It's still like that, yeah. Obviously, and I think lots of women now even still don't really Mm. necessarily feel that comfortable doing it. Mm. But I found that if you set the tone, stepping into certain environments, you just have to set the tone and say, you know, it's not a big deal. This is just part of the. He might make some noise, but he doesn't. (laughs) He can't walk yet. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I I do think it's really important for artists, um, you know, to to do that to work through. Um, if you can, and obviously it's not the same for everyone, but for me at the time I felt there was a little bit of pressure around, you know, people saying, just take a break, just stop mm, and take a break. Mm. And I know we've talked about this mm. before, but it's sort of like I didn't want to take a break. Yeah. It's not in my nature. I'll get really depressed if I take a yeah. break. But people still want to tell you that. Like, I know. enjoy it. It's I like, know. I am enjoying oh my it. God. I'm just working at the same yeah. time. I find that really hard actually hearing that when people mm. say that, you know, like, yeah, encouraging me just to enjoy it because it makes me feel like I'm... Guilty. Yeah, guilty. Yeah. It makes me feel like I'm compromising Dante somehow. But you're not. You're actually doing the best possible thing for you and yep. for him because yep. he's going to grow up watching his mum be this kick-ass amazing artist. And now my boys are, you know, eight and five yep. and they talk about their mum being an artist and all the different yep. things that you do. Whereas yep. if I had have just taken a break and enjoyed it or worked at night when the kids, you know, yep. it's... It's not the same. It's not your real life. Yeah. Why? Yeah. But I do think you're right. Like a lot of women still feel the pressure to to change when you have a child and often their partners don't. Yeah. And sometimes their partners do. But, you know, like I think it's really important to sort of say you can keep, yeah. you know, flying and to I'm Sydney. Fully, and- yeah, I know. He's been on six flights. <laughs> I know he's a little trooper, yeah. but um, but I I do feel completely engaged with him, you know, and yeah, I don't course. feel like I'm, I'm compromising. No, you're not. I'm just doing both side by side, and it is great now that Scott and I have arranged that I've got these Tuesdays and Thursdays because yeah. it also means then that I can leave all my emails and whatever else I have to do to those days. Yeah. And then when I'm with little Dante, I can be fully engaged and we can, yeah. you know, do whatever we want to do, you know, whether it's whatever yeah. whatever it is and you get to a point where it gets even more of a specific routine like I remember the point where I was like oh I do all my emails while they're in the bath together or yeah. I you know I do check my phone while I'm pushing the pram or yeah. stacking the dishwasher or, and it's funny I've been interviewed about this so many times and I'm sort of anti using your screen in front of kids mm. but it's sort of like, well, you can use your screen. You just have to be really careful when you do it. Mm. And But the thing is you can make art in front of a kid. Yeah. That's a good thing funny, to do. Isn't it? Yeah. And it's like just put them in your studio. Yeah. Watch. They're fascinated in it. Yeah. And I think as an artist particularly who uses clay and perhaps why I got into clay yeah. was because kids, it's 
so good for kids. Yeah. And, I mean, you don't want to – it gets hard when they're like, I want that, the porcelain, like the really expensive stuff. Or I want that really <laughs> nice rag paper, Mum. Yeah. Like, That's really expensive paper. Yeah. But yeah. the thing is at least – But how they, cool, though, that they, that they actually <laughs> – the difference. Yeah, I love that. But the thing is that being an artist, it's actually – it is a real privilege to, to be a mother and an artist because you've got this great world that they can, you know, yep. be part of. Yeah. But do you think your work is starting to reflect that new – sort of uh, seeing as you're so bodily and mm. that's a big part of how, what informs your work. How has that translated that journey through pregnancy to motherhood into your work? Have you seen any differences? I It's sort of hard to tell at this stage because it's still sort of early days really. Mm. Um, I think I'd be able to see that more in clearly retrospectively. Oh, yeah. yeah, But I guess in the short term I think that I feel more comfortable to cast the body, you know, whereas I wouldn't have before. Really? It would have actually just felt un- like kind of arbitrary doing it before, mm. whereas now my body f- has taken on new meaning for me. Mm. It's this um, it's this. It's not just a vessel, it's a biosphere. Mm. I feel like it's this sort of completely self-generating and regenerating bubble. It's amazing, right? It's the most extraordinary thing. And <laughs> yeah. with Dante and I, you know, I – create him and he eats me and it's this sort of it's so weird. very <laughs> intense you know cycle it's an intense arrangement yeah. yeah and before the baby was on the even on the horizon or a st- you know sparkle in the sky it's mm. sort of like well my body's just a body it, it's not just a body but that's how i perceived it you mm. know and now it's taken on a whole new kind of significance to me yeah. You come across as someone that works pretty much in the present, like quite a lot in the present with a bit of planning and really good planning and very organised. But can you foresee sort of into the future what that might mean for your practice? Like as you get older, do you know, do you think that will have the same kind of impact on your work? I guess it does on what, mother, Motherhood or no, the, the, the body? the body. Like how the body changes. Oh, it's hard to tell because... I don't want it to. I don't want to corner. You know, paint myself into sure, a corner. I sure. still work with different like processes yeah, yeah. and different. Um, yeah, different. Like the, the my interest in body initially was gravity. Mm. Was actually the the invisible forces that pin us to the earth mm. that hold us down. It's not necessarily just the body, mm-hmm. but it's this sort of. I guess the it's the body in the world, really. Yeah, isn't it? it's, it's like it's, yeah, it's where the body and the world meet, and mm. it's it's that sort of. Um, boundary mm. in many ways that I'm exploring. So whether it's the body or it could be sound, you know, in the, mm. the space that sound occupies or it, that can go in any any direction. So yeah, it's true. I don't I, – it's not um, – this is how I'm exploring those ideas now. Yeah. But it could be – could become any being in, yeah. the, in the landscape or yeah. in the sky or yeah. in the – Yeah, it's interesting because it, it is sort of like a relational practice in that way but not in the way that we know of relational practices. Mm. It's quite kind of – abstract relational practice mm. in a way, isn't it? Mm. But I, I think the thread that sort of runs through my practice is more exploring these the idea of these invisible forces. And mm. they can be the art historical context. They can be questions of value and authorship. It's all these cultural and physical forces that, that frame us mm. and that govern the ways in which we negotiate our world and, and ourselves and our being. That's the stuff that I explore in, in all these different ways. That's actually the kernel of my practice. And so in terms of, I mean, ideas around gender, because you've always struck me as someone that 
obviously celebrates the female form, literally. But then as a woman in the world, you know, you're quite a confident, powerful force (laughs) if anyone's met you, but also just the way that people refer to you, even the longevity of your work or, you know, you have a very strong sort of personality. But do you see, I mean, in terms of feminism or ideas of gender and power, how do you see that as a part of your work or is it something that's just because you're a woman and, you know, do you, do, you, do you think about that when you're making work? No, and it's only the world that reflects that back to me. Mm. It's when people say exactly mm. what you just said that I, that I become aware of how, I'm, how I present myself in the world because it's not a conscious thing. I think I probably take up a fair amount of space, <laughs> but it's, it's not, it doesn't mean to be like that. You mm. know, I, I, um, I don't know how to, I don't really know how to answer that question because it's, it's very complex. But you would constantly be working, like in the, in the fields that you're working in, it's fairly male dominated, like yeah. architecture, even landscape, public sculpture, you know, so you must be aware of that. Yeah. Um, I'm a self-made woman mm. and, and, I think what's important to me, in the sense that, you know, I've created my own world. world. Nothing's yeah. ever been handed to me I and I take a lot of pride in that and and I value that in other people enormously as well. Mm-hmm. And I think that's whether woman or man, that's what's important and it might come across as a, as a kind of powerful characteristic, but it's more that I'm a self-determined person. So anyone that's sort of forged their own path from nothing you know I mean I had a wonderful childhood but I left home when I was very young and I made my own way so I think that the the sort of in a way maybe the confidence that comes with that is what's being conveyed but I don't think it's gender specific per se. No that's it's really interesting because I do think that you become you know powerful women often are seen as feminists because you don't have any fear around um, what what it means to be the only woman in a room because mm. you don't really think about that. But mm. but your confidence, it's interesting to see sort of where it comes from and, mm. yeah, yeah. I think also it's important to kind of know, to contextualise it. When I Before I did the PhD, mm. way, way back when I was a little girl and we immigrated from the Netherlands to New Zealand, mm. I was one of these, like, I was, I was like, chronically shy absolutely chronically shy. I didn't assimilate at all to the other culture. We didn't have any relatives all of a sudden. I couldn't speak the language. I was totally unsocialised. I was the little girl that sits under the table crying, Mm. you know, completely isolated. And I think there was so much, I was so dislocated and displaced and disoriented that I spent my life trying to reclaim a bit of that space or a bit of place or, Mm. you know, try and work out how I fit into this big ghastly thing called the world, you know. And and part of me working through that was first to obviously pick up English and understand what the hell people were saying around me. But then it's sort of, you know, one thing, then I sort of felt like, okay, well now I understand a little bit more. And and I sort of, I found that knowledge was the way, Mm. you know, and through, in my case, through the educational system, you know, knowledge was the way for me to feel empowered. Yeah. And, you know, then I finished school, I came to Australia, I got a degree, I got an honours, got a master's and got, and I, I thought, oh, maybe, and nothing felt kind of, I still felt kind of um, inadequate and lost, not lost, Mm. but just inadequate. Like there's got to be more. I still don't get it. Mm. And then by the time I got the PhD, I realised, 
no one's got a clue. No, you know, if there's everyone. one thing, if there's one takeaway, and it's I know it's a it's a sort of a cliche, but it's that nobody knows what the hell's going on. But it took me to get all the way to the other end to realize to be able to look back and and know that all of my all of, every, anyone you meet with a PhD, if you think that that's a, some sign of intelligence, it's not. It's a sign of hard work, but yeah. it's not a sign of intelligence. Yeah. No. And sometimes people come out more confused after doing that. Oh, yeah, PhD. totally, totally, absolutely, yeah. But it is a nice challenge. I mean, I think when you're sort of a person like I think we both are, it's nice to set yourself challenges. But sometimes, I mean, I find it hard to work out which challenges are the ones that are going to make me a saner person and which mm. ones are the ones that are going to make me a sort of self-destructive crazy yeah. person yeah and sometimes they're hard to split apart yeah. which challenge to choose and as you get older it's almost like I mean for me a lot of it is based in just the joy of materials these days mm. like I'm I sort of got back to that very like almost animal sense of intuition with materials. And I see that a lot in your work as well. And I think that's what, you know, draw, draws me to your practice as well, like that strong um, sense of intuition mm -hmm. that through whatever stage of your practice. But the other thing I wanted to bring up was just the notion of craft, of mm -hmm. like making. And I know that early in your practice there was actually weaving as well. Yeah. So what... You know, do you still revisit that? Is that still a I've actually got a massive exhibition solo show opening up of tapestries yeah, in, right. in a couple of weeks. Really? Yeah, at McClayland. New but ones? No, no, they're, ones. They're, they're existing ones. Yeah. Um, there is two new ones, but, mm -hmm. yeah, it's, it's part of an existing body of work. Yeah, so what was the question in that? Sorry, Just making. the idea of craft and making and yeah. how much is that a cerebral process for you to achieve a kind of concept or... Um, an intuitive process and what, what part of your practice does that sort of satiate us? Yeah. I think it comes down to being that physical kind of person again. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I love working with my hands and with my body. So the tapestries are two and a half metres tall, you know, they're in mm -hmm. steel frames um, where the loom is the frame that they're made into or woven into. So it's still very physical. But also historically, like the, the whole sort of craft conversation around clay being gendered is something that um, frustrates me because mm. clay traditionally wasn't a woman's not. craft. No, it's not at all. Yeah. You know, it came out of the. It's the same like the bro the the Bronze Age, the Stone Age. You know, there's the these were tools were made out of them. Like it was a utilitarian um, yeah. object that was useful. Houses were made out. Of yeah. Them. yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's it's. Yeah, the gender. The, what? What is that? Even in the seventies, it was males that dominated. Yeah, but what? Why has that happened? Like I was trying to work that out the other day too. What's? Um, I I don't have a short answer for that. Is it perhaps around the home? Is it because of the sort of domestic? I think nature? perhaps yeah that they sort of um. Or maybe it's around um you know the idea of industrialization like machines doing things quite a masculine idea you know like men invented machines men uh, use machines yeah i and, don't know and maybe they just felt well there's no point in us doing it anymore because yeah we don't we need can, to we don't need to so it's kind of it's this... like the camera taking over painting and the you know but then the cat but then photography is not a masculine versus no, feminine. True. like it is kind of weird that some certain crafts have been called more feminine practices but then the irony in the art world i always think is 
funny is that you're more likely to succeed as a male doing these feminist <laughs> or yeah. feminine crafts yeah. because of the sort of juxtaposition of that. Or, you know, like my example I always The sort use of sweet is, irony of it. Exactly. Yeah. It's like if, you, if you're if you a man and you paint a show of tea towels, then, you know, the NGV will snap Isn't it up it straight away. Yeah. Whereas if you're a woman, that's just like suicide. Or... Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> but, but that's why I love... You know, one of the female painters that I love the most of Australian painters is um, Prudence Flint. I like Prudence Flint as well. Yeah. I really love her, the way she captures the female psyche, mm. you know, the sort of, and they're very f- feminine, you know, and they are very But they have female. gravity as well. They do figures, have gravity. Yeah. And they've got a calmness that sort of um, transcends gender. Mm-hmm. Well, there's a thoughtfulness in in these sort of figures that, that I, I find transcends gender. Mm. So. Yeah, even though they're very domestic, they've got all the tropes of very yeah. feminine kind of work, but they are um, even the palette is in a sense very feminine. Yeah, but they are bigger than they move beyond gender. And me. I do think that there's a kind of, I mean, for a long time I was really anti, like no pale colors, no pink, no nothing, and then almost in a way of reclaiming, like you know, in the same way that you can reclaim a derogatory word or something. Mm. I just couldn't get enough of it because Mm. all of a sudden I felt like, and actually it was after I had children, Mm. I just felt like, actually, fuck it. I don't mm. care. I, I mean, I felt like I had to binge all this stuff that I wasn't allowed to be a good kind of contemporary artist. You're not allowed to, you know, be too feminine or mm. too domestic or whatever. Mm. But I do feel like there's a turn now where people are just actually reclaiming that stuff that maybe has been seen as mm. twee or domestic or whatever. Mm. Mm. And in some ways it's it's okay now. Or, mm. you know, you've mm. got to push through it obviously and have a process. But yeah, I do think that that's a very interesting discussion around craft that often isn't had. Mm. Yeah. You know, yeah. Yeah. the craft is taboo kind of thing. Yeah. Well, I don't know if craft, I don't even know that the word is relevant mm. for me, you know, or, yeah. or in the field. I think that, I think if you take that word out of it and just, you know, say, sculptor or maker or. I agree. I think it's all the artist. same thing, but it's still used. I think craft. Is is more defined by its an object's reproducibility. Yeah, you know, like if yeah. you you know a, a sort of a craft ceramicist might be someone who makes cups because you can you multiples know or... make multiples. Yeah, a hundred of them. Whereas art is sort of, mm. or at least the aura of art is defined by its uniqueness. Yeah, but I do love. I tend to be drawn to works that use the either the materials or even the technique of craft to make something kind of useless. Mm. Like yeah. that, for me, that's like a massive area of interest Yeah, in that it's the language of these kind of utilitarian multiples, but they're actually not, yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. not used for anything. Yeah, but And I think those, I mean, weaving is probably a perfect example because it's not like your big hung tapestries really do anything. Well, they're not they're not hung, yeah, because they're actually in these Frames. huge steel, yeah. So they become sculptures. Which... Yeah, and they're freestanding. So, they're, you know, the, the front has equal significance as the back, mm. so you can actually walk around them. But even, I guess, if you looked at, you know, something like concrete like that as well, is that the essence of what concrete, you know, is developed for was, was utilitarian. Yeah. yeah. And so using that is a kind of defiance as well of its original purpose. Mm, mm. And public sculpture in a way almost is. But it's, it's funny because the other day I was having a discussion with my partner who's an architect about follies, architectural mm-hmm. follies, the difference between an architectural folly and a sculpture, public mm-hmm, sculpture. Mm-hmm. And essentially the outcome was that the public sculptures grew from modernism, as you were saying, but that these things 
pretty much were public sculptures before that. So these architectural follies that existed mm. for a long time before mm. that were where architects decided to sort of do a useless thing mm. on the front of a building or in the landscape. Mm. But it's bizarre that in two fields it's kind of mm. just become different terminology and they kept quite separately. Yeah, but I think that art does always have a purpose and, and if I were to mm. distill it down into, you know, a sort of a crucible, I'd say that it, through my eyes, I like art to always still generate thought and pose questions. Of course. Whereas follies don't need to do that. Well, it or do just, they? I uh, well, know. I think they do because what else do they do? If It, it, it might not be a deep question, <laughs> but it, it may be just a basic question of what's that thing doing there? Like, Yeah, yeah. Is that, that a might... pineapple? You know, that's yeah. still a question. Yeah, yeah, true. But is that a one-liner? I don't know. I mean, uh, uh, you but a know. lot of public sculpture is as well, just a one-liner. Yeah, and that's one of the that's one of the real problems with public sculpture mm. is that often they are these really reductive kind of extensions of someone's practice. Mm. You know, it's like the summary of someone's like a giant logo. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And it's the that's something I'm so mindful of when I do these big mm. works. Like, how can I avoid that happening? And sort of how to make them nuanced at, at each as its own yeah. project. How do they retain the complexity of, of the smaller gallery scale hmm. works and my conceptual practice? How can I, even the, the, the tactility of my smaller works, how can that sensitivity Translate. or sensibility be conveyed at a large scale? That must be difficult though. It is, and I don't know that I've that I've got there, but that's what I'm trying to achieve. Because often when things get bigger, they do get, I mean, just out of pure necessity, Scale, they, get, yeah. they get sort of simplified yeah. or smoothed, or, yeah. you know. Yeah. So the artist's hand, just because of pure scale, is yeah. kind of lost. But it might be, you know, that that can be reclaimed through details mm. or it depends on where the work is, if, if people can go right up to it or if it's to be sort of seen from a distance or, you know, there's lots of different aspects to it. But, yeah, that that's one of the hardest things to to one of the hardest sort of little boundaries to. Mm, to translate. Yeah. And that's probably why, I guess, in the 60s to 90s it, it became quite bland when, mm. you know, everything's, I guess, you've got to manufacture it and it becomes hard-edged. Yeah. And so to get that sort of soft yeah. touch is quite difficult yeah. if you want to get it, obviously. Yeah, yeah. The other thing I wanted to talk about was, you know, you're, you've been for – for a mid career, or I think they say early, early, early mid-career. to mid career. Okay, and um, whatever my gallery still says, I'm I'm emerging. Oh, you're emerged. Sorry, <laughs> I'm going to correct that one. Um, but you you're quite you do seem quite kind of together with like how you've managed to do it all structurally or financially, and that's something that I think maybe people listening mm-hmm. or people that I know have been listening uh, trying to work all that stuff out themselves, mm. like how do we sort of like work out our lives to complement our practices, not so that the life bit overbears or the job mm. bit, but so that you can make giant, big, expensive, mm-hmm. you know. How does that happen? How does that how does work? It? Yeah. yeah. Good question and I'm glad you ask it because I don't think enough people talk about mm. the nuts and bolts of finance these sorts of things and actually I loved it your interview with Patricia when she was talking Mm. about the sort of you know the nuts and bolts of her practice and making that whole operation it's intense right yeah and the stress yeah the pressure Mm. for me it's been really incremental for all of my practice so the thing that's enabled me to start exploring bigger ideas has been arts vic or creative victoria Mm -hmm. grants opportunities yeah yeah well grants yeah not big grants like i started the first grant i got was three thousand dollars you know and doing those things you know you don't have to work for that money Mm -hmm. so you can put obviously put your energy into your practice but they there's something psychologically that happens when you're 
given that money. Yeah, um, not only is it a privilege, so you actually value that money in a particular kind of way, yes. but it also just liberates your imagination. Mm-hmm. You know, you don't need to justify every cent in the way you do when you're making coffees, yeah. you know, for <laughs> whatever yeah, you know nothing. yeah yeah nothing I, <laughs> yeah. I mean I waitressed for 10 years yeah, you me know too, yeah yeah you you come home tired Knackers. and dirty and you and know. then you go to your studio and try and squeeze a bit more yeah out. and you have to you know every eight dollars you have to stretch you know yeah <laughs> you know, it's I awful. ate porridge for a year I'm pretty sure yeah yeah, I ate rotten tomatoes from the Victoria Market, you know, 3 p.m. <laughs> yeah, 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 dumpsters, dumpster, dumpster, all of yeah. that. But you do um, make it work at that but point. So, and then when, but when you start then, and I always, I, I always made it really important for the first many, many, many years not to worry about selling my artwork. Mm-hmm. I didn't want to put any pressure on that side of my practice so that I could cultivate my thinking and explore, you know, just not have to worry about that. Yeah. So as a result, I waitress but I also um, started picking up sessional teaching work and you know picked up whatever I could find in terms of teaching Mm -hmm. you know which is is really good you know to sort of keep the boat afloat but I did live on the smell of an oily rag for a really long time now you know you sort of hit a bit of a tipping point when the more the bigger the projects get the more confidence people have in in your ability to you're proven kind of thing yeah and they get more excited by it and they give you more opportunities and bigger opportunities, yeah. you know, to sort of explore that. But it's, so it's, it's been a really, um, it's sort of a, a, a give and take and a, and a sort of tug, tug of war, you know. You earn, uh, for, a many, for a long time it was mm. unsustainable mm. and it's only recently that things have become sustainable. I found it's a similar time. It's sort of like... You know, well, for some people it's a lot earlier, but you're sort of like your mid-30s. You start to kind of go, okay, well, I'm either not doing this anymore because yeah. it's just not going to work out or I'm going to really learn how to talk about my practice and who I am and, and actually not have any doubts about that because that's just not useful. Yeah. Put it out there and then just go with it. Yeah. But it sort of happens at a certain time where you go, oh, I have to do this now or otherwise I'm going to yeah. just have to choose a different career. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, 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 absolutely. And I, there have been definitely been times where I've thought this is this is an unsustainable model. I can't do this. Yeah, I have to do something else. And especially when my son started, you know, when I was pregnant, I was like, and at that time I was invited to do a project where I got I had no financial support for, mm. so I had to take something Hard. like twenty or thirty thousand dollars out of savings, savings, mortgage, <sighs> and the risk. Oh my god, I was shitting bullets. Yeah. You know, with no guarantee that no. the work would sell at all. So purely on speculation and at that point I had to really think hard about not only is this wise or foolish, mm. but who's being compromised. If this doesn't go ahead, then mm. that's 30 grand that I've robbed from my son. That's how it, that's how it felt. <laughs> that's brutal. You know, robbing yeah. Peter to pay Paul, it, like yeah. it, worse than that, it, just throwing the money into mm. thin air. Incidentally, it did work in my favor. And then that, everything that I make in my practice goes Mm. back into my practice. So I have what I refer to as the art fund, Mm -hmm. you know. It's Mm -hmm. like I have a card and it's got written on an art fund. And my partner completely understands that that's not grocery money. It's not like we can go on holidays with that. That then fuels the next project. Every project is a stepping stone for the next project. This is also something that a lot of people I speak to do as well that, yeah. that that in that way is a kind of that's your boundaries and and that's sort of how you grow is yeah and sometimes it might dip 
it might dip down, you do something smaller in between or you do something sort of slightly different in between yeah. um, in order to keep it going along. But generally when you get a bit of a flow, it kind of follows on. Yeah. The, the thing that I've found kind of interesting and challenging is being aware of the, the fact that you're getting to this point in your career where stuff is starting to happen and you're getting opportunities. But I'm really aware that I want to get a certain type of opportunity that allows me to ask questions and be curious and make changes in, you know, beyond myself. So mm-hmm. actually contribute to something beyond myself. So in enabling your practice to be open enough at that point that you don't get pigeonholed into sort of like making the same thing forever yeah. that doesn't allow you to grow. Yeah. I think that's a really difficult thing to do. Well, I wonder if I've gone too far in the wrong direction of that where my practice is so diverse that, you know, people are like, well, what is what the hell is she on about now? Yeah, you're talking to me. Like, <laughs> no, I don't think so. And I actually think that this is the only way that you can be happy mm. is, well, for me anyway, and some people love just doing the one thing and I'm not, I'm not dissing that at all, but if you are someone that likes to be, you know, out there and doing lots of different things, I don't think that's a bad thing. And in the past we've been taught that that's actually something that's going to be detriment to your practice unless you talk to someone that's managed to do it for 50 years. Mm. They're usually really happy because mm. they have all these different projects that they're working on. Mm. It's just sort of getting to that point and having the confidence to keep different things alive yeah. instead of just yeah. it's it's a tricky thing to do but yeah. I don't I don't think your practice is that multi anyway like it's quite and that's what people always say to you it's like I oh, know I can tell that you did that or it's obviously something of yours but you feel like you're yeah. You have all these different tentacles yeah out. yeah yeah it's yeah. a tricky thing though to it get is. it across that that threshold I, I get so much energy from working with different things and considering different materials for, you know, if I have a project, I, I visualize it in marble or in, you know, granite or mm. bronze or clay. And, you know, the, I love just my mind being able to move into those different, yeah. you know, across those different materials and those having those doors all open, all open. Yeah. 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 And just, you know, dancing through those different doors is, yeah. really energizes me. Yeah, and it's cool because it means that as you get older, you can, I mean, you could add shut one door if you wanted to and add something yeah. else that's more suitable for a time of life. Yeah. And yeah, it's funny. I always... The only thing I don't think I'll ever do, yeah. but never say never. <laughs> I'm going to hold you to this. <laughs> is um, video art. Oh, really? Yeah. I've got a couple. I did a few when I was younger, but there's something about the duration of that, like, yeah. It's not to say that I don't like video art because there's some oh, really amazing yeah. stuff. There's also some boring as batshit stuff. Mm. But because it occupies real time, mm. it sort of occupies mental space. Like it, it sort of forms a layer over time, mm. over space, whereas I like the mind when it encounters sculpture or painting to create its own space. Mm, that's an interesting way of looking at it. So it's sort of like you're in control of the slowness or quickness that you encounter an yeah. object. yeah. 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 Whereas that, it kind of dictates time. how long you spend yeah. with it. No, oh, yeah. I've never really thought of it like that. Well, I mean, lots of video pieces are not necessarily linear. No, not, that's not necessarily true. linear. But mm. even if they're not, they still they're still durational. So there is still that constraint of mm. the way they occupy time. I'm more interested these days in how a body of work is framed. Interesting. And in the curators, because art is art, you know, and and if you go to the Biennale, I just saw the Sydney Biennale, you know, every Biennale could be, they could all be one or the other, you know, the artworks could operate in any one of those Biennales two years ago, 10 years ago, you know, this year. But 
it's the way that these works have pulled together mm. that is the unique element in a mm. way, like which isn't to take away from the the wonderfulness of each different artwork, but it's the um, story they tell together. Yeah, are the yeah. That's why I find it really frustrating when something you just can't tell what the curatorial premise is at all. Yeah, or it's just that it looks good on Instagram or yeah. You know, we all know. This. And I think so, you know, often a curator will ha- will have a beautiful premise and they'll invite great artists, mm. but ultimately the artists will just put in whatever they want to put mm. in that may not be sympathetic to the curator's objectives. Mm. So if I don't read that curatorial objective or framework, mm. then I kind of miss the intent of mm. of the work, of the body of work. No, there is a real craft in being a good curator, I think. And I do, I mean, I always love shows that are curated by artists. I, I find a good artist curator is someone that has not just an understanding of where it fits in art history or in society but also has an understanding of how of how it might feel to be the person that made that mm. or what it might take to make that mm. but i do also think that good curators that aren't artists can can achieve that as well just yeah. through empathy yeah. but it is it is a real craft to um to paint a a full picture with other people's work like it's yeah. It's quite a tricky thing to do yeah. and then bring all the money together and all the people to install it and I think often maybe just a general person might overlook that mm. important step or there's yeah. a lot of artists who li- like to hate curators as well, which <laughs> I find really weird because I think they're actually amazing, fascinating I think they're creatures. amazing too. I do think though they, they wield an, an awful lot of power, you know, in the art world. Mm. They they make or break careers. I've been taken under the wings, the angel wings of a, of a couple of curators mm. that have really made made my career mm. by giving me opportunities. But the, in still in saying that, I mean, you can also take that control. Like if you're listening and you're not and you haven't been taken under the angel wings, which there's a lot of people that haven't and might think, well, I've been left out or I've been overlooked or first of all, it may still happen. And secondly, you can also create that opportunity yourself. So, yep. I mean, as an artist, I've curated many exhibitions myself and yep. received lots of funding to do it and possibly made other people's careers in the yep. in the and which is a great thing to do. Yep. And you collectives can, like Damp have it, an enormous presence exactly. that they've generated themselves. Yeah, or the Slow Art Collective or lots yep. of people that might think um I love it when a group of artists kind of thinks they don't sit within the system or they're a bit different so they make their own yep. world and then that enables, you know, that that's a great thing to do. And yep. I'm not sure why more artists don't curate, yeah. but I love it when or, or, they do. Or create collectives. <laughs> yeah, I think that yeah. that's a really great model. Yeah, you or know, manifestos. To like, support what? each other. Yeah. I want some more manifestos to come back. I mean, that's <laughs> it's obviously a bit outdated, but it, I do love it. You know, there was that great show where um, I can't remember the artist who did it but made a short film for each manifesto throughout history and Kate Blanchett was in a couple of them. Mm. It toured to, I saw it at, I think, Goma in, in Queensland or it was somewhere, And it, but it was such a great kind of idea that these these visualisations of, of sort of like bold statements from different groups of artists throughout time. It's almost like you're, you're writing a script for yeah. future artists to yeah. follow. Yeah. But in some ways I think curators are sort of forming this landscape or writing the story of our times through yeah. art. But there's nothing to say that you that anyone can't do that. Like yeah. if you've got the passion and you know your stuff. Absolutely. Anyone can curate a show. Yeah. So I do think that those institutional curators do wield a lot of power and a lot of them do it really respectfully and carefully. Yeah, and I think as well, because I forget that there is a listener at the other end of this, so <laughs> good, good to remember you know, that. Good to, good to yeah. bring it back in. But to elaborate on that then, 
by saying some a couple of curators really, you know, helped you out, helped me out. That wasn't they didn't pluck me out of the sky. By that point, I was had a studio in Gertrude Street. I applied about five or six times to get that studio mm. before I got it. So, and that's that's I mean that is a good point. Like you 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 worked really really hard to get there. And often, and I didn't I wasn't defeated by rejection. No, I think that's the key. Exactly. And often that is a story that a lot of successful artists, either mid career or older, share that story is that yeah. they didn't just fall into it. They didn't just get put. They worked really, really hard to get there and they got knocked back many, many times. Many, many times. I mean, for every, you know, I I always say for every one successful application I might have, you know, Mm. for funding, there's five rejections. It's one to five. At one point I worked at that ratio. I don't know if it's still exactly. So intense, isn't it? Well, it's just it's just a it's just, it's just a reality, and it's fine. I mean, God, I you know, if they were just handing out money left, right, and centre, I you wouldn't have the hunger for it for That's for true. those opportunities, and you wouldn't value them necessarily in the same way. I do also think it becomes part of like as a contemporary artist, you know, unless you're okay with getting through just you know supporting your own practice through other means, which is also fine. But if you do want to be part of that system in a way, or you do want to receive funding, you have to write. You have to write a lot. Yeah. Like you have to get okay with writing. Totally. And find a mentor. Like I had, um, I remember Kate just when I was a student and she was a student too, but she was some years ahead of me and Mm. she said to me, she reached out and she said, oh, if you want me to have a look at your draft, I'm happy to. And I was so grateful. She did. She gave me excellent feedback and that happened to be the first proposal or grant application that I got Mm. that was successful. And I would would have been way too shy to actually Mm. ask someone to go over my application with me. Mm. But I offer it now to friends that are or or, you know acquaintances students that ask me I'm very happy to look at people's and actually now I'm at the (laughs) now I'm on the assessment panel so it's sort of I'm at the other end but it's it's really important to have mentors or you know to reach out to friends for you know another pair of peepers to have a look at what you're doing yeah well I mean in some ways that's where this whole project grew out of because I found myself reaching out to um, older women artists originally just informally to have a cup of coffee and realizing that I'm pretty bold in my you know what I need and how to get it Mm. but but at the same time, I have a lot of self-doubt as well. But, at the, you know, I realise that there's a lot of other artists out there that might not do that. But mm. it's it's actually a really good thing to do. And mm. the, the worst thing that can happen is that someone goes, no, I'm too busy. Mm. And then you're just back and to where you fine. started anyway. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I think that it, in my experience, if anyone asks me for... Um, a hand or for advice mm. or whatever, I feel privileged that they've asked me for that. Of course. You know, I, yeah. it, it's, it's a compliment. It's a real compliment and it's really hard for me to say no, you know, because mm. I feel like it's I'm humbled that they've asked me. Mm. Sometimes, you know, you can't. On that, I mean, like especially becoming a mother and it's difficult when you're a very generous person because you feel like uh, you have endless supplies of, of energy and you, you definitely come across as someone like that. But it does get to a point particularly when you're a parent and your child's young, where you run out of some of that energy Mm. and it starts to really wear you down. Mm. And I kind of look back at that time and I actually don't remember a lot of that the first two years of both of my children, which is pretty full on because I was so drained from giving everything that I had. Mm. And in some ways, I know it's contradicting what I said before, but in some ways there is a point where you have to start really prioritising and yeah. saying no to things. And yeah. how do you assess what you say no to? Um, 
Well, for a start, I should say that while it looks like I'm, you know, managing all of this, the only person that sees behind the fourth wall is my partner who (laughs) sees the exhausted, distressed, anxious version of me, you know, when I am stressed. So it's Mm. not like I'm managing all of this all the time time (laughs) and without great effort, you know, like enormous effort. Um, There are definitely moments where I'm completely exasperated, where I think, you know, where I doubt everything. Mm. Is it worth it? This is this isn't working, all the rest of it. Mm. But in terms of saying no to things, um, yeah, I find that so hard because like you, Ty, I just, I love working. Mm. It's really hard. And you can always get something out of anything that yeah. you do. Yeah. I'm interested in everything. Mm. You know, I mean, I even, I have to absolutely cap my hobbies even, you know, I'm only allowed three hobbies because if that's fine, I had to write them down, you know, don't do anything unless it's these things because I can just go, you know, if I start looking at goats, I'll get interested in, you know, I want a goat and start, you know, having a goat herd. I'm interested in everything from stargazing to worm farms to, you know, there's nothing. So I have to there's no limit, so I have to absolutely constrain my, my interests. I like it how you just cap it at, at work and <laughs> and three hobbies. Yeah, I know. It's hopefully, so arbitrary. Hopefully one of them is cooking so you stay alive. No, oh, no. So it is, it is funny, that. though, because your, your limitations are pretty broad, like beyond what most people would do if they tried to get a new hobby or whatever. But but even within work, I find that, um, you know, there are there's a lot of times where you, I can't work out whether you say yes or no to something mm. and 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 when I look back on it as much as I think it's good to say yes to as much as you can especially earlier on mm. but there are some times where I think now that I'm getting older I probably just should have said no to that mm. you know mm. and there's something that comes in that you learn either through <laughs> making mistakes mm. or through someone saying to you you know someone said to me once you just need to start learning how to say no a bit more and mm. that will really benefit you mm. And in some ways I fought against it for ages going, no, that's not right. I can do whatever I want, whenever mm, I want. Mm, but mm. it's kind of true. Yeah, I think I'm probably not aware of it yet. It's mm. probably too early for me in my motherhood journey to, I mean, I have to say those six weeks that I was working on that ceramic work, mm. I've talked about it with my partner since, I feel like I don't remember any of my son's life of those six weeks. Yeah. And that was alarming when mm. I looked back at that period. Like I was, even though I made sure that to the best of my ability I was engaged with him when I was with him mm. and then I'd be engaged with my practice in my studio and then I'd be engaged with him. But retrospectively, actually, that those six weeks disappeared. Mm. And that's really worrying because... Mm. That's just, not a sustainable model. That's yeah, and not it a can just turn into six years. Exactly, really exactly. And but, as you're talking, I'm thinking, yeah, maybe no, I. But the but the thing need is, to you, re- you think consider. that, and like I can't remember those two years, except there are photographs to prove that I was there. <laughs> you were there, yeah. but I was just so sleep deprived that yeah. my brain, for whatever reason, some of that's just fallen out of my memory. Yeah, but I think. It's almost like, yeah, you get through and you make it work and probably you're fine to your family, but it's more like when you start to, you know, have a car accident or yeah, or hurt yeah. yourself or burn your hands on the oven or like yeah. all these things happened to me and it and, and I didn't yeah. even realise until someone said, I think... Think you're tired. Think you're tired. <laughs> think you need a nap, Think you're honey. doing too much yeah. or, you know... And- I have noticed actually lately that I've been 
clumsy and I've never been clumsy before mm, in my life. That's like, mm. Yeah, like spilling coffee, breaking cups, breaking, I've been breaking things. Mm. And I think I, it has occurred to me that that might be a sleep issue. Yeah. But actually something I've just done, this is a tangent, but I'm quite excited about it, yeah. is that I've decided to go paperless oh, in my life. Completely. So, completely. So everything's what about up in drawing? the cloud. No. no so drawing. I've got a, um, you know, a tablet. Yeah. So, and I've got, <gasps> I no work, paper. No I don't paper. think I could live without paper. It's been a big decision. Uh, like <laughs> it, I had to really think about it. I yeah. had to really research, you know, mm-hmm. products and processes, workflows, you know, whatever, wow. everything. Um, so I've got a, you know, an Apple pencil yeah. and whatever, and I had to test it out and decide if it was what I, you know, if it's going to it sort of fuck with my intuition. But what about texture? Yeah. Now, so... I mean, obviously, if I do a drawing, yeah. that'll be on paper, oh, okay. like a proper drawing. Oh, no, drawing. that's fine. Then. But paperless in the sense of, um, like, when I'm sketching up ideas, mm. all of that will be in the tablet and in the cloud. Wow. I just, it's a process of, for me of simplifying and streamlining and yeah. getting rid of the physical stuff. crap and all the other rubbish that mm-hmm. comes with just stuff. I just want my baby, my partner, my practice. <laughs> and a whole heap of clay and bronze and concrete. Yeah. <laughs> and three hobbies. <laughs> So awesome. Oh, on that note, I've um I I think I think we've talked for probably beyond okay. our time limit. But, Can um, I add one yes, more little thing? Sorry, because yes, I, I meant to add it. Two of your speakers that you've had, Sally Smart and Patricia Piccinini, both mm. reached out to me when I was pregnant, and I think that that was really significant to me. Mm. Um, so in terms of you know, sometimes I'm the mentor to uh, emerging artists, but I still very much have mentors that I look up to, mm. and you know, in an ongoing way, yeah, value their input. Yeah. And I think that's really important. Because I, I have to remember, there's a listener. Yeah, <laughs> I think that's really important. In my case, I never feel afraid to reach out for guidance. Yeah, you know, I'm never at a point where I've got it, where mm. I get it, you know, mm. and I'm done. Yeah, it's an ongoing sort of thing. And and Sally and Patricia, who both are mothers and yeah. both have you know really you know rich and complex practices. Yeah, for me to sort of chat with them about their journey. Yeah, they're amazing. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah, and but I, they're also very generous and willing to share. And I think that's really important. And I think the best women are. And I yeah. think that in terms of what does it mean to be a powerful woman, mm-hmm. I think it's being generous, it's being resourceful, it's being capable, it's sharing. It's these those I qualities mm-hmm. that make a woman powerful. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> totally. Well, on that note yeah. then, <laughs> um, I'd like to thank you for your time because I know it's very precious and streamlined. <laughs> it's my pleasure. Um, yeah, it's been a pleasure having you. Thanks, Sana. Thanks. I really could have kept talking to Sana all day. We shared so many views, from our love of empathetic curators to our love of working with our hands. I identified with Sana's thoughts on motherhood too. The way she said, I create him and then he eats me. Such a sculptural description of having a baby. Also, the tricky reality of being an artist and working with the timeline of a new baby. Having the monitor in the studio, working between feeds. It really is, as she says, a new constraint to work with. When you're used to working with clay and concrete and bronze, which is all about timing, a baby just becomes part of the challenge. Sana made me think a lot about what it means to be a powerful, self-made woman. How, for her, this came from initially being displaced and then spending her life finding power and place through knowledge and practice. 
And my favourite takeaway from Sana is that even though other people might look like it, no one has a clue what they're doing. Just keep all the doors open and keep dancing through them. This conversation was hosted by me, Ty Snaith. I'm an artist for those of you who don't know my work. I'm actually making a series of artworks inspired by each of these conversations. The first iteration was shown recently at Sarah Scout Presents. The exhibition's over now, but you can see the documentation on my website. For more information about the project and the artists I'm speaking to, head to tysnaith.com. Thanks to my audio producer, Beck Fari, and Melbourne musician Fia, spelt P-H-I-A, for letting us use this track, End of the Day, from her album, The Ocean of Everything. This podcast was originally conceived as part of the exhibition Unfinished Business, Perspectives on Art and Feminism at the Australian Centre for Contemporary Art. The second season and the exhibition is supported by the Australia Council for the Arts, 